0: Well, I invite you to, uh, we'll, we'll end up in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, but but I told you to uh, take a look, if you wanted, uh, a little prep work at uh, Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul will uh, deal with issues within the Corinthian church specifically involving uh, marriage and um, divorce, uh, marital relationship, and um, we'll look at that in a second. But the background of it is this teaching in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, and I thought it's instructive to get a good look at what goes on here. I, I um, the dialogue in Matthew 19, and on these slides I've simplified it. I I'm always. Every time I do this, I'm always charting this out. Because uh, you want to look at the dialogue. You want to look at the back and forth between the, the those involved. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Well, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And the disciples said to Jesus, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is, uh, it's actually 531, Jesus is talking about the kingdom righteousness. And in 520 he said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that there's a righteousness in the kingdom of heaven, there's a righteousness in following him, which demands much more than than legalistic rule-keeping. In 531, he says, whoever uh, divorces his wife... No, okay, okay, let me back up. In chapter 5, Jesus will move through a pattern, and he'll say, you've heard that it's said, but I say to you. You've heard this, but I say this. And what he's going to do is he's going to take what they've heard in the law interpreted by the pharisees and the scribes and then he's going to intensify it or he's going to deepen it now he's not just changing it he's going to the heart of what it's about so for example he says uh, uh you've heard it said do not kill but i say to you don't be angry because he says that's the seed of murder um in this case he says uh uh, Five thirty-one. It was also said, "Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of a divorce." But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. Here they they. This is this. By the way, this uh, it was said, "Whoever divorces his wife, let him get a certificate of divorce." That's Deuteronomy twenty-four. And uh, Deuteronomy twenty-four is an instruction of the old law and it's the one that the pharisees bring up here in this test and remember they're not seeking a good answer they're they're testing this is a trap okay this is a loaded question and um but deuteronomy 24 just as you saw in that teaching on the sermon of the mount is what's behind this so let's 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 follow this uh is it lawful to divorce for any cause? Now, the question will come out differently in Mark chapter 10. We'll get to that in a second. But Mark and Matthew both uh, chronicle and report the occasion. And uh, again, it's the same thing. They, they each have their own little emphasis or, or tweak on it. Okay, And, and that shouldn't bother us. Uh, the, the point of the gospel writers is to, re, is to communicate the truth and to tell the story, and to get at the heart of who Jesus was. Not to come up with a uh, detailed timeline chronicle of every exact thing. This is why we have four Gospels. It's wonderful. Um, in fact, you ever notice that you know, people in your family, we all know a story, we all know the same story, but some people in your family can tell it better than others? Yeah. But it depends on the story. There are some stories in my family you have to get my sister to tell it, because she can tell it better than I can. But most stories I can tell better than she can. So, anyway. Uh, Yeah, no, there's a few. And uh, that's usually what the stories have to do with, is is me and her fussing like that. But Matthew has things he wants to emphasize. Mark has things that that he needs to emphasize. John won't even follow a chronology. He says, look, I'm going to tell you some stories. I was there. Let me tell you what I saw. Again, let's let them each four of them have their emphasis, because that is a, a, a wonderful Deposit of information that gives us then this the, these views on the truth and what happened in the account and the events and uh, anyway so Matthew emphasizes this idea that the question had to do with any cause and and there was a debate among the Pharisees over the grounds for divorce, and it all hinged on the way you interpreted deuteronomy twenty four one because deuteronomy twenty four creates a scenario that says uh, it says suppose and, 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 and the, uh, the teaching that you find in Deuteronomy 24 always started out as okay here's a given situation let's say it's like this and uh, it says suppose a man uh, finds uh, something indecent in his wife okay now one group would emphasize the uh, something or the anything let's say that he finds anything indecent uh, you know, he doesn't like the way she does her hair, or something like that. He thinks it's indecent. You know, okay. Well, they—that was a very open interpretation. The others focused on the word "indecent." It was like, no, we know what indecency means. All right, so they're wanting Jesus to take a side. All right, this is one of these loaded questions, uh, like you see in politics today. So Jesus's response to that is, they ask the question, "Any cause?" And he says, "Have you not read?" He takes them back to Genesis. He says, look at the Genesis story. Look at God's intent. God creates male. He creates female. He creates companionship. He creates this, this relationship. God puts it together. Let's not, let's not take it apart. And It's really interesting. They're asking the question of divorce. Jesus goes back to the intent, the purpose, and the meaning of marriage. The conversation could have ended there, but they, they won't allow it to end. They say, okay, well, that, yeah, but what about Moses and the certificate of divorce? Jesus' response is, that's because of your stubbornness that's because you refuse to follow god's intent and and so the certificate was required and it's really interesting if you go through deuteronomy 24 what the certificate of divorce does is not give special permissions to the men it actually protects the interest of the woman who's divorced it puts some limitations on it uh it it's, 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 it's very interesting, too. Uh, we've developed some, some teaching, which I don't think is, is very easily supported, that, uh, you know, say you've got people who become Christians and they've been married two or three times or something like that, and we say, ah, the only marriage that God will allow is that very first marriage. So you have to break up all these other marriages, which may even be more healthy than the first one, and you have to somehow reconnect this one. It's really interesting because Deuteronomy 24 says that's the one thing you must not do. Deuteronomy 24 creates a situation where this fellow gets rid of his wife and then she goes off, marries someone else, and then he divorces her and it says, okay, well, he can't take her back. Husband number one can't take her back. Uh, Jesus' whole point to all that, though, is it's like, look, that that, that certificate of divorce is is a patch it's a fix it's not the way it's supposed to be it's like one of those spare tire donuts you know those that you get on your car little old thing it's not even a real tire but the idea of it is that if your tire deflates you can slap that thing on and get down the road and you probably know people like i've known people who've driven around that donut for months you know but you look at it and you, re- and you recognize quickly, okay, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's just to get you by. Jesus is saying that certificate of divorce is not what God intended from the beginning. But we had to do something to protect people who were going to get hurt. Okay, so this causes the disciples later on to ask the question, well, well you know, this is the way it's going to be. It's, just, it's, it's better not to get married. Now, they're not throwing their hands up and saying, whew, you know, marriage is for the birds. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're saying, wait a second, maybe it's preferable then not to be married. Maybe they're looking at it a different way. And then Jesus gets into this strange talk about eunuchs. And, uh, you know, then, of course, you've got to explain what a eunuch is. And uh, a eunuch is, is, uh, is someone who there's no point in a eunuch being married. Because unit can't reproduce, a unit can't participate in an ordinary relationship, and then Jesus describes these situations. Well, there's those who are born that way, there's those who are made that way, and he goes, and then there's those who are that way for the kingdom. In other words, they've made a choice to remain unmarried and to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom. In the time of Jesus and in the time of Paul, there would have been philosophers who taught a uh, a way of life unhindered by the concerns and the worries of this world uh now that creates both an opportunity and a challenge because the opportunity is is that paul actually does find some favor in that he says you know there's some truth to that but at the same time those who use that as a mark of superior holiness they're missing the point we'll get into that in a second Let's uh, let's take a look at Mark ten. The way the Mark ten story works out is the question of the Pharisees simply is, is it lawful? Let's read that. Mark ten. Uh, Mark's narrative is much more direct. Uh, 10-2. Pharisees came up in order to test Jesus, and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer one they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and is married to another man, she commits adultery. Okay. A uh, little different in the way the dialogue takes place. But the details and the focus are the same. Jesus says, and not what do you read, but what did Moses teach you? Essentially the same. He's saying you're the experts of the law. You give me the answer. They say Moses allowed it. Uh, And he says, yeah, but that's." he's going back to the original intent. In both cases, Jesus will go back to the intent of creation and say that there's something important in that that demonstrates how it's supposed to be. And then the disciples ask this question, and Jesus now here's where Jesus gives what we typically call the exception clause, and I, I, I prefer that we not call it the exception clause, because I don't think we understand why Jesus is saying that. Furthermore, if Jesus is putting an asterisk on let no one separate this, and, and I'm going to say something that's going to sound really bold and arrogant, and I, and I I, actually intend it to, because by saying that, it it, it shows that we ought to be it shows that there's a problem. Let me let me let me show you. If that's the exception clause that Jesus comes up with, I can come up with a lot of exception clauses that are better than that. Now, if I can come up with exception clauses that are better than Jesus, that's a problem. Because I'm not that good at all. So that tells me that maybe Jesus isn't saying, "Ah, well, you know, there's one case." What if Jesus is just applying the logic of the situation you, know, you go back to his Matthew 19 discussion with the Pharisees and I think it becomes very clear because he says it to them uh, he says I say to you the one who divorces his wife and, and in Greek it says not because of immorality in other words the one who divorces his wife parentheses not because of immorality and marries another is committing adultery They're legalizing their lustful desires. Well, you know, I mean, retire to this wife. This, this wife is preferable. We can only have one, but we'll give her a bill of divorce. For what reason? Well, you know, that's private. A man can decide that. He holds all the cards. And then I, I want to pursue this. Well, it's good and legal. You know, there's a lot of things that are good and legal. But that doesn't mean that they're right. You know, hey, we want to make some, you know, money, all of us here. We ought to put together a farm and grow some medical marijuana. Oh, shouldn't do that, preacher. Why not? It's legal. But is it good? See, what they were doing was they were playing fast and loose with God's original intent, and they were focusing on how do you legalize divorce. And Jesus is saying, and it fits with what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. You're just, you're just finding a way to legalize your own, your own desires. So when you divorce your wife and marry someone, you're, you're really just committing adultery is what he's saying to them. That's really what you're up to. You're not practicing legal divorce. You're practicing adultery, which is breaking one of the commandments. Now, he has to allow except for immorality because that would be the situation where they would do that, and it wouldn't be because of their, their wrong desires. Now we've been historical in all of this. We're going to get pastoral in just a second and we're going to get contemporary. Um, I will tell you that Matthew 19 and Mark 10 have been abused in such a way that it creates these um, uh, situations where there's this never-ending sin. And where that idea is based on Greek grammar That cannot be supported. I've read the the papers on this. I've heard the arguments on this, that that is a continual state of sin. If you are in that adulterous marriage, we can't say that. That, that, That's going too far. Um, Divorce happens. The idea that we can only be married once in God's eyes. Where do you find the phrase in God's eyes in Scripture? Hmm. Interesting. Some of this comes from history. Some of this comes from uh Catholic Church teaching about marriage and celibacy. I'm not saying divorce is okay. Malachi, God says he hates it. Well, divorced people hate it too. Uh, there's a reality to this though, that, that, that Jesus is not addressing that as much as he's addressing look, here's the idea, here's the standard, here's the intent. Does it always reach that? No, it falls apart sometimes. But we need to strive for that intent. That's what we need to be doing. That's where Paul's going to go, which takes us to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul is going to show us how to use these scriptures, like Matthew 19, Mark 10, Matthew 5. He's going to show us how to use the teaching of the Lord. And I think... 1 Corinthians 7 is much more helpful to us even on applying the teaching of the Lord on God's intent in marriage, even more so than, than, than Matthew 19 and Mark 10. But we have to start there because that's where we see the teaching of the Lord. Okay. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, there's a, there's a break in, the, in, the, in what Jesus says. He says, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote... Over in chapter 16, we find out that they sent Paul a letter and they had some specific questions about some things. One of them was, they made the statement, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. They're talking about abstinence, and they're talking about abstinence even in the marital covenant. And this is consistent with what some of the philosophers of the day teach. It's like, hey, it's better for us to to kind of remove ourselves from all that. Let's take another little detour, real quick. Jump on over to Colossians two. Yeah. In Colossians two. Uh, two sixteen. Paul says to the Colossian church, "Let no one pass judgment on you in question." "...of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, uh, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind." And not holding fast to the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Uh, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and, and teachings? Paul's making the Colossians aware that, yeah, there are people who will give you all the, well, it's, you know, here, here's the rule on this, here's the rule on that. They like to sort everything out. Don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. And Corinth seems to have some of that, too. Corinth, though, seems to go in both extremes. You have people who say, we're much more spiritual because we refuse impure foods, or we're much more spiritual because we, we, uh, we refuse physical pleasures, and then you have people who say, well, if I'm in tune with God and if I've got God's spirit, then it really doesn't matter what I do in the body. Because over in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he talks about sexual immorality that's going on in Corinth. So they have both extremes. And both extremes seem to be a problem. Because it takes us off of what really matters, which is Christ. Okay, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, so there's somebody in, in, in the church, and maybe it's a debate within Corinth. We don't know. We're only getting one side of the, of the conversation. Maybe they're, but, but Paul says, okay, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. In other words, he's saying somebody in Corinth says that uh, 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 celibacy, asceticism is a good thing. Well, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. <clears throat> the husband should give to his wife her rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, now that statement right there, Corinth would have said, "Eh." yeah, they would have said, oh, that's right. The next statement is what's unique. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Throughout this, Paul will affirm that there is a mutual submission and mutual respect between the husband and the wife. That they agree to assist and help one another. And in that you see him going back to that Genesis teaching where the two become one. If the one is just the servant of the other, then that's not really two becoming one. In Ephesians, Ephesians 5... Paul will talk about the household relationships, which which were common in his day. People would talk about that. Husbands, wives, parents, children, and even masters and slaves. That was part of the ancient household. And everybody had their advice, all of the philosophers, all the moralists of the day. But Paul starts out 521 with an interesting statement. He, He talks about submitting ourselves to one another. Which seems to be the umbrella for the entire discourse. That in everything, each of us is submitting ourselves to the other for their good. This is going to fit with where he's heading in 1 Corinthians 13. Where love doesn't seek its own good, but seeks the good of the other. So he says that uh, husband and wife both are seeking the benefit of the other. And that each is giving up his or her rights. It's not one-sided. So he says, uh, verse 5, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement. Uh, You know, they're they're mutual in this again. And for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He, he, mean, he means single and comfortable in that lifestyle, I guess. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one to another. And this fits with what Jesus was teaching his disciples about those who can receive this saying. You know, he says some people live the single life or live without that need for companionship or uh, the sexual relationship. They live as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Disciples listening to this and he says now not everybody can receive that and that's not a that's not a um, that's not an insult he says that's that's a gift and Paul seems to to be okay with that but he says but but you know if anybody can live that way that'd be great but he can't make it a rule which is where rules in religion about celibacy whatever group is doing them it's not that celibacy is wrong But to make it a required rule for one group or another group or for everybody goes beyond the gospel. Uh, Okay, now he starts identifying situations and cases. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But... If they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge. And now notice this, not I, but the Lord. And this is what we have up here. He says, the Lord says uh, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul says, this is a charge to you. And he goes, this is bigger than me. He says, this comes from a higher office. This comes from the Lord. If you're married, stay married. Okay. Uh, He says, to the rest, I say, and he says, now this is coming from me, not the Lord. He's going to take from the Lord's teaching, and now he's going to put out an instruction. So in 1 Corinthians 7, we see Paul say, now look, the Lord says this. Don't separate, stay together. Why? Because you're married. The marital covenant means something. Now he instructs. Uh, okay, but but if we have a situation like this, and then he goes on to say, um, to the married I give this. Wait, I'm sorry. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Sounds like he's saying they ought to stay married. Then why does Paul need to say, well, this is me saying this, not the Lord? It's because this is a scenario that does not come up in Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees in either Matthew 19 or Mark 10. It's a, it's a unique situation where what seems to be happening, and this may be why the church is saying things like it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It may be that the Corinthians, and, and, and we, got, we have to cut them a little bit of slack. I mean, they're figuring out this whole Christian life thing early on. They're only a few decades into this, and they're coming out of a, a pagan world where the value system is, is completely upside down. At least we have the weight of a pretty Christianized society all around us, and that creates its own challenges. But he sees this situation and he says, okay, we, we need to apply some instruction there, and it ought to be based in what the Lord taught about marriage. But it, it, what they may be doing is, they may, you know, as soon as one of them becomes a Christian, they might say, I'm sanctified, I'm holy, so I'm going to go divorce my old uh, uh, pagan husband and get rid of him and walk away. And, uh, you know, and that's just disrupting households. And you got these old boys, and they're saying, you know, well, my wife's a witch. I mean, she's out of here, you know. And, and, I mean, he's not just, you know, upset with her. I mean, she's actually a practicing witch or something like that. So he says, you know, get rid of her. And uh, and they think they're all pure and holy. And they're doing the same thing that the Pharisees were doing. They're legalizing it and making it look all pure and self-righteous. And so I think Paul has taken that principle from Jesus, and he's saying, you no, no, hold on, he's saying, If you find yourself in a situation like that and you're married to an unbeliever and they're willing to stay with you, stay married. Don't disrupt that family. He says they don't corrupt you, you actually sanctify them. He says the sanctifying force, and you remember how important that is, he says the sanctifying force is so much more powerful in this situation. He says because your children are sanctified. I think he has a hope that that family will eventually all become believers. That's his hope. Now, there's another concern that's operating in the background for Paul, and that is that he believes that the Lord will come back in his lifetime. It didn't happen. Was Paul wrong? No. He has to live with that expectancy, just like we all do. And maybe we need to change our thinking and expect that, okay, well, if every, As he says to the Colossians, if the form of this world is is you know coming loose i mean these are just shadows he says how can we really invest in this world it's like we said this morning all the governments and structures of this world are confederate money you know, i've used that expression before everybody understands what i mean by that right do we understand i mean it's like you know as soon as the Confe- as soon as the civil war is over confederate money's worthless you know it doesn't it, it doesn't count anymore why it's defunct it's no it's no longer good that's what he's saying he said if you invest too much in the structures of this world the day that christ comes back they're worthless it's like the parable of the treasures you know the man puts all the treasure up in the storehouse and he says look what i've got he says you can't take it with you you're going to die tonight says the lord you've invested in things that don't matter so paul is urging them since the time is short Why not keep life uncomplicated and stay single? Probably some of the Corinthians are saying, okay, yeah, maybe so. Some of them are saying, I can't. Paul says, well, then get married. You got two options. Remain single, get married. And maybe you had some Corinthians who were saying stuff like, well, you know, I'm I'm, going to stay single, but, you know, every once in a while I... I go off and to the places of prostitution. You know, and that's happening in Corinth. Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, that's immorality. He says, immorality threatens the entire church. You can't say you're single and then live in an immoral situation like it's okay. He says, that, that's going to threaten everything. He says, we've got to be clear. And really what he's talking about, he's talking about boundaries on one level but he's also talking about that intent of God, the same thing that Jesus was going to. Look, there's man, woman. Here it is. It, 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 you know, this is this is God's design. But singleness is also a part of that. And one of the things we need to probably learn from this is that Paul says it's not bad to be single. You're not broken. You're not incomplete. You're not unfinished or anything like that in fact he sees that in the church community there is enough love and fellowship that no one truly lives alone so he can say something like this he, uh, let's see uh, skip on down um, he'll talk about the okay uh verse yeah 25 um he'll say concerning the betrothed i have no command from the lord he's talking about those who are engaged to be married But I give my judgment as one who's led by the Lord's mercy and who is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Well, Then don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, then you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, then she's not sinned. Um, He'll say to the... um, uh, to the widows he 'll say um, and th- those who who 've lost a spouse he 'll say Remain single now, keep in mind that 's quite an ask for a woman who 's lost and again it 's not just a um, it 's not just a companionship issue it 's also an economic issue because Women often found themselves, well, you know, they have to attach themselves to a man because the, the, the men, men had much more rights in that society. Paul is saying the society of the church, the community of the church, ought to be different, and you ought to take care of those people. So Paul can ask them to do some of these things because he wants them to be different. Um, So he has these different instructions based on the the situation and he'll deliver a ruling. But it's all rooted in, number one, the primary teaching of the Lord, of Jesus Christ, that goes back to creation. Secondly, it's informed by his view that the, the world is changing and that Jesus could come back and he wants them first and foremost devoted to that. He doesn't say that them marrying or uh, uh, you know entering into marriage or marrying again is a problem as long as they do it in a way that honors God and keeps them focused on the kingdom of God. And to those who are married, he says, keep that covenant. And he'll talk about staying how you were when you were called. Um, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. He's talking about a principle. He's saying that your calling to follow Christ should not be so disruptive that, uh, that it becomes more of a curse than a blessing to everyone else. So he says, uh, at the time that you, that you were uh, called, were you already circumcised? then don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Were you at the time of your calling uncircumcised? Then don't seek to be circumcised. You remember that that in Acts became an issue. Well, now before they become Christians, don't they have to enter into the Jewish covenant? And the, and the resounding answer was no. In other words, who you are, you don't have to add anything else to be a follower of Christ. So he wants them to remain somewhat detached from the as he says later the anxieties and cares of the world and that may seem strange to us because we might be thinking well wait a second isn't marriage like the the holy institution and a holy sacrament where do you find that in scripture or is that traditional teaching i'm certainly not (laughs) anti-marriage i'm a participant in the institution and very happy with it but um again i think that that his point is, and it's a good perspective for us, is he says there is a higher calling. And all of our other callings need to support and affirm that calling. Now, he even talk about slavery. Now, slavery, slavery is certainly not a decent institution in any way. And even in the time of Paul, it's not good. It's certainly not what we think of uh, with a lot of situations in our own history and then in the world, he will say, now, listen, if you were a slave, then, you, know, you don't run away. And then you've had that example of Onesimus and Philemon. And he says, listen, th- because there is, a, there is a covenant relationship in that. There's kind of a contractual relationship. That's a better way to say it. It's not a covenant. <clears throat> um, there's an understanding. It's, it is a social institution. He says, you, you know, Onesimus, he says, you, you owe something to to Philemon, and, and something has to be worked out here. Now, he's appealing to them for a, a higher calling than the institution of master and slave, and he does say here, he says, now, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom, but he says, let's not do it in a way that, uh, that is going to be so disruptive that it's going to be more of a, of a curse and a blessing. Now, once again, the church finds itself now In a situation where, as a community, we can create an alternative to that institution. So, for example, when people say that, I'm telling you, you get into some heavy stuff with 1 Corinthians. When people say, um, well, maybe a man and a man and a woman and a woman can marry. Because after all, we wouldn't want them to be lonely. Maybe the church needs to start creating an alternative. An alternative where the fellowship and the companionship and the care of the community allows someone who maybe they are, maybe as Jesus says, maybe they are born that way. Maybe they're made that way. But they can live single for the sake of the kingdom that 's a hot button right now um, well i 'll sit down drink coffee and talk to anybody about that. The thing is, I look back at the intent that Jesus says here, and he says well okay here 's the intent now Jesus you know as far as we know jesus wasn 't married, some people say, well I, I think he was well so what if he was i mean it's a, it, it, that's not the that's that 's neither here nor there. If he was married, it would probably be told to us, and but you know i can 't see that something like that wouldn't be said, but that's not really the, the, the point. Jesus is sold out to the kingdom and to the gospel. And Paul says he's the same way, but there's no shame in entering into the covenant of marriage if that keeps us away from immorality. Because where Paul is heading in 1 Corinthians, what the teaching of Jesus is is this holiness, this sanctification, which honors God's ways of doing things. This is the answer that we don't use very often when it comes to the debate right now about homosexual marriage. Instead, what we want to do is we want to say, well, it's not the law of the land. Well, now it is. You know, but at one time we could say it's not the law of the land. It's not natural. Well, now it is. And, 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 then, and then we would say things uh, like, uh, well, you, you know, uh, uh, it, it's, it's not in Scripture still tough to talk about this is he's saying um just like with marriage if you're going to enter into that that covenant what you're doing is you're wanting to live in such a way be it single or be it married man and woman you want to live in one of those options in a way that reflects and shows the sanctified life so you've got to find the option that shows purity and sanctification I just think that's a a, a very helpful way to even get into this discussion. Now, if somebody wants to say to me, listen, I think that I can be sanctified and do whatever I want. Okay. I can't accept that. You know, I I mean, but but whether I can accept it or not, it's not the point. My question is, is, do you see that in the teaching of the Lord? Paul will come up with some conclusions on his own. He'll say, you know, I say this. I, not the Lord. I'm going to create this concession. Here's my principle for all the churches. I mean, Paul understands that there's got to be some some wisdom in this. And he's inviting the Corinthians to say, you know, what are we going to do in that situation? Because Jesus Christ, in his teaching, did not anticipate every detailed situation. God didn't even do that. I mean, you see God in the creation creating uh, man and woman, and they're, and they're, going, they're supposed to live together uh, You know, in that covenant. Jesus goes back to that. He calls the patriarchs. What's the next thing you know? Jacob's got two wives and two concubines, and it's just a mess. I mean, that whole thing is, is uh, you know, I mean, you can't say that's a traditional marriage. Well, I don't even know what that is, okay, with Jacob in, in those days. And by the way, our missionaries face this same problem when they go to parts of the world where polygamy is an issue. Now, what do you do? Well, you can only pick one wife. You better pick one. If this fellow has three wives and he has to pick one, two of them are going to be turned out to a situation where it's going to be dire. Because they're not going to have the kind of support that they had we all i'm saying is we have to think about these things and then the church has to act in such a way that we become the community that says we are committed to everyone living a sanctified life and we're going to work together on that that's why this living holy thing is is not really meant for 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 hermits who want to go live on a mountain somewhere, and it's certainly not meant for self-righteous people who want to prove that they're better for everybody else. It's a team effort. And that's why he's calling the Corinthians to be unified, because they can't, they can't do this if they're all divided against each other. All right, so we'll look at a few more things in 1 Corinthians 7 next week. And then, uh, you know, bad enough that they're talking about the way that they spend their life and who they spend their life with. Now, all of a sudden, they start meddling and talking about what other people can and can't eat. And so we'll, we'll look at that in the next few chapters. But his principle keeps coming forth. We're going to uh, break now. Ron's going to lead us in song. And if you need to partake of the communion, that is in room 100. Let's stand. Let's sing together. And then Russell us in prayer.